Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm producer Kale, filling in for Jen. Uh, we have a great show today. We have a really good interview with Rene Rojas. Uh, he's been on this channel several times before, um, typically talking about Chile. And yes, he's talking about Chile. But uh, it's because there's actually a lot of really wonderful and exciting things happening in Chilean politics. Uh, that I don't know if you know this, but they actually have a socialist in office. Uh, and they're in the process of uh, reforming their constitution. And so um, there's actually a pretty good chance that there's going to be some massive political changes in Chile. Uh, and also we've seen massive changes in the region in general. And so uh, we get into a little bit of what it means actually uh, for, to have a socialist in office and then also have kind of a left presence in the entire region and, and what the possibilities are. Um, so stick around for that. Uh, that's going to be fun. Uh, in the meantime, I'm actually now joined by friend of the show, Ben Burgess. Uh, ben is hopefully a fan favorite. Um, he should be. If he's not, he will be after today. Um, and if he's still not, we're going to keep trying uh, because Ben is one of our favorites. Uh, so good to see you, Ben. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good, Kale. How are you? Just chilling. Hanging in there. Uh, keeping my mind on Chile. Um so uh, let me see. I'm just checking producer notes. Um, uh, looks like we're supposed to be talking about the uh, labor theory of value. Um, yeah, for the first for the the first three hours, going to be the labor theory of value, right? That's that that uh, you know, like then we're gonna we're gonna shift um, and uh, and talk about you know how to overcome the value form. That right. was going to be hours three through six. Yeah. Look. Folks, I'm sorry. You you know how this goes. I'm the producer, but even I have to be straight jacketed into these conversations sometimes. So we're all going to brace ourselves and we're going to make it through the transformation problem. Um, no, actually, we're not going to talk about that. Uh, but uh, speaking of value and maybe avoiding value and <laughs> doesn't even matter. Actually, Ben has um, some pretty great articles in Jacobin recently on a good chunk of G.A. Cohen's work and also uh, exploitation and how we understand exploitation with or without value theory. And so you should check those out. But actually, Ben, the reason why uh, you're here and what I, why I wanted to talk to you today has more to do with uh, the fact that we are in a period of defeat. I think that's pretty recognizable. I think it's there's a general sense of defeat right now for most people, um, broadly, but especially on the left. Uh, a lot of that, you know, it starts with Bernie Sanders' electoral defeat, but includes COVID. It includes, you know, Biden's pretty lame uh, presidency and, and inability to get anything done. Even, you know, when there was glimmers of hope, uh, they've all been shot down for the most part. Obviously, what the Supreme Court has done in the last month um, and we're probably there's probably another dozen things that we've hopefully repressed to some extent uh, between now and then. And um, but it's a bad time, and I think that's pretty obvious. Um, and so I think it's worth thinking through what the left does in periods of mm -hmm. defeat and in to 
use everyone loves to throw in you know as Gramsci said uh, the the political interregnum uh, that we're in of you know um, or as you know Boscar has said before kind of the left in purgatory of mm-hmm. um, this moment where uh, we're relevant in a, you know in some sense sometimes not always the best sense mm-hmm. um, but uh, there is something of an activist and organized left in America and at the same time it's not really uh, a, a powerful political force that actually can contest uh, you know global or not global, but national politics um, and try to win its uh, its objectives try to win its platform that it's um, you know anything seems like you know if we can get anything past here or there uh, it's it's a victory and and very often it is but um, we still are in some in a fairly marginal position, um, and uh, it does feel like the wind has kind of been taken out of our sails. Mm. Um, so maybe just kind of broadly, you know, what have you been doing in purgatory? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I mean, I guess it's a little bit like there's the was this some like uh, Zen story about this bodhisattva who you know they, they ask what did he you know what did he do before he achieved enlightenment he said I, I brought water from the well and they said what do you do after you achieved enlightenment i brought water from the well you know that's uh, which is um you know supposed to uh supposed to be really profound i guess so they uh and um you know, the kind of saying, you know, same spirit. I mean, it's like, I don't know, what do I do, right? I mean, I, I write articles for Jacobin. I have, uh, uh, you know, I, I do my show, I do debates, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly does feel different. I mean, I, I, I could, I could very fondly remember, you know, like, um, being, uh, you know, being in like the, I don't know, airport on my way back from the last TMBS live show working on an article for Jack Ben about how, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, really won Iowa, not Mayor Pete, you know, and like that, that, that felt, you know, that felt good in a way that, uh, in a way that a lot of this other stuff, uh, does not, right. You know, that that's, uh, and, and I, I mean, I think the sort of, um, I mean, there is a sense. I mean, you know, you joke about the labor theory of value. I mean, I actually have been teaching a class on uh, on, on Capital Volume One, uh, so uh, in, in a sense, that act, that is a little bit, you know, of what I've been doing with my time. But uh, but but I do. But yeah, I mean, there is this there is this bigger problem that we're all facing in one way or another, which is that you know we certainly haven't had the kind of breakthroughs that you know we were maybe hoping you know, that we, that we might've had by now. And yeah, there is this, you know, there is this palpable sense of, uh, of defeat, you know, right. That's the, um, you know, whatever the meme is, you know, my heroes are dead and my enemies are in power and all that stuff. Right. You know, that like, I don't know about that, but like, um, you know, some of them are, uh, some of the heroes are still trucking, but like, uh, you know, but, but certainly my enemies are in power. Like the, uh, you know, the Roe v. Wade overturning is very grim, you know, the, uh, the outcome of the, you know, the 2020 primaries, which we're obviously still, which we're obviously living with right now. And it feels like kind of about to pay the piper on in, in terms of electoral consequences, right? Mm-hmm. You know, cause, cause Biden was able to, um, squeeze through. I mean, he, he actually didn't, really win by all that much considering right that like there was a plague going on and half the country was on fire but like you know even under those circumstances and it was also easier to vote 
that it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And 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 will and certainly easier than it'll be this fall or in twenty twenty four. And he still barely won. And now he uh because it's fucking Biden, you know, so he has uh like there's I think like twenty six percent or something of Democrats, you know, want him to uh want him to run again. And you know, and, and so yeah, a lot of incredibly a lot of incredibly grim things are are happening and I think that it's not but it's not just that, right? It's not just defeat, although that's certainly part of it, right? It's it's also that um, it's also the sort of lack of focus mm-hmm. that uh, when the Bernie campaigns were going on, that was something that anybody on the left with any sort of instinct for interfacing with real world politics was going to gravitate, you know, was going to have that kind of gravitational pull, you know. And there's really nothing since then that quite does that in the. Uh, in the same way, right? You know that there's there's not like oh here's the thing that like obviously you're going to sort of put your your energies and your um, uh, and your your hopes into and you know and, and you're going to kind of kind of focus on where in some ways back to the normal state of the left, which is just kind of a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. Right. Well, so on so that's something where I think a lot of people feeling defeat on the left uh, are feeling it for the first time in the sense that mm-hmm. this we have what. The new, new left, the new, new, new left. There's too many. We, you can't call something the new left and then there be, you know, another new left after that. Uh, but yeah. whatever, we'll we'll learn maybe. But um, whatever this is, the, the kind of the Bernie yeah. left, um, the, yeah. the the left that has kind of come together in this period of the last few years. Um, of course, you know, uh, people would tell you that you know the left prior to that, if you were on the left in the '90s, it was pretty grim um and when when you stay on the left for a long time you it is largely kind of a history of defeats that you Mm -hmm. you go through cycles of defeats of kind of moments of ascendance sometimes there's some breakthroughs but very often just because of the structural imbalance of our side versus our enemy side uh more often than not we're going to lose um right so there on the one side on the one hand you know it's thinking through you know how do people for the first time kind of experiencing defeat stay on the left and, and kind of become more kind of constructive with their time um, that, uh, you know, so th- there's that. And then also the fact that I think like we probably do need um, more of a sober analysis of why there even is a left right now. The fact that, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, and I, I want your take on this, but uh, the extent to which, you know, we can say there's a left because of the Bernie Sanders campaigns. And if that's true, then what, why the Bernie campaigns and also what were the limitations of that moment? Um, and so, mm-hmm. and we can kind of sidestep for the moment, you know, the whole question mm-hmm. of Bernie 2024. I think like there's a number of conversations on that. Um, and whether or not you support that, I mean, Bernie doesn't care. I mean, he's going to do what he's going to do, hopefully. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, if that happens or if it doesn't happen, um, it should be worth considering, at least in this moment, you know, to what extent, like what that actually did for the left. Um, mm-hmm. And if, you know, if that's something where, shit, that's all we got, or is there something that we can do uh, more constructively between now and then, regardless of uh, another Bernie run? Um but maybe maybe just that first, Ben. Maybe your sense of sure. like where what makes this new left a new mm-hmm. thing, um, and then we can maybe move into you know like what what we can actually do 
Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the two birdie campaigns, uh, which, yeah, are, are really where this kind of came together. I mean, I, I remember, um, you know, I remember reading Jacobin in the very early years of Jacobin uh, and having, you know, and, and like there's much more sort of uh, theoretical you know, kind of content there. I remember, you know, than than there is now. Uh, it was, you know, very much a product of like, you know, I mean, I guess like Occupy had already happened and stuff like that. But like, you know, it was it was, it was very much a, you know, it was, it was very much a magazine of like sort of leftists talking to each other. And it it, it appeared when there wasn't really, you know, a uh, much of a left to speak of. You know that, and you know, even. You know, occupy. Uh, I mean, I, I um, uh, to name check a figure who's been on my radar recently. Like, I, I don't, I don't think it's. You know, if you think about the fact that somebody like Tim Pool came out of Occupy, right? I mean, that kind of tells you something, right? That they uh, that it was this sort of like there was this sort of very like primitive glimmering of some kind of like proto 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 class consciousness, but it was also, um, you know, there's also a lot of weird like you know. Uh, Ron Paul stuff going on in there, and you know whatever, right? You know, it's so. happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so then, um, you know, so the Bernie campaigns, I think, are really important for you know it coming together and like having this, you know, this sort of widespread sense of dissatisfaction about economic inequality that you know had you know, really been festering since the, you know, since, since, uh, 2008, you know, but like, but like had finally taken, I think a more useful, uh, a useful form, um, that, you know, one that was, uh, sort of explicitly focused on, uh, on left, uh, policy ideas, certainly. Right. You know, and, and, and that had, you know, and that, and that did have, and however, sort of, you know, messy and, and, you know, ideologically unclear ways, right? You know, did have some basic kind of like good left ideas, you know, baked into it. Um, but you know, the limitation was always that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't rooted in anything like an organized working class. You know mm-hmm. that, um, you know that this was all going on while we had like a you know private sector unionization rate of like six point seven percent. You know, and um, and so. And, you know, a lot of, um, and then coming out of that, right, the sort of main, like, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I've never bought into the idea that, like, the main reason that the Bernie campaigns are important is sort of movement building, even though it is kind of where a movement came out of. Um, I, and I, I think, like, you know, if there's a case for Bernie to run in 2024, it's because you think he might actually win, you know, not to, not to, not as some sort of, like, workaround to, to try to build up, uh, left forces because uh, i i think that's if anything right i mean if you lose it's incredibly demoralizing right you know so like i don't know that, that even makes sense in its own terms but um but i think that um the you know the main sort of fruit of that uh in an immediate way right that besides like the like lower level electoral victories you know that uh people who are at least loosely aligned with the kind of birdie movement being elected to Congress and lower level offices and all that, which is big too. But like beyond that, the main kind of fruit was DSA, right? That it went from being, 
you know, a glorified mailing list of, of a few hundred people to, um, to a real organization of, you know, whatever, whatever it was, hundred thousand, you know, um, and you know, that's, that's huge in a certain way, you know, that that's like, uh, you'd have to go back to the like popular front era communist party to, to find a sort of comparable level of socialist organization. Although, you know, one that was a lot different in terms of social base, uh, in some ways, right. You know, like the, the, you know, plenty of Hollywood actors in the 1940s CPUSA, but also, but also a lot more shop stewards, you know, than, we, than the, uh, yeah, we mostly have the Hollywood actors this time around. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We've, we've still got Trumbo, but we don't have the CIA organizers, you know? So, uh, yeah, no, exactly. So, and that's, and that's a problem. Uh, and, you know, and I'm not saying that to like, you know, shit on DSA. I mean, they, they get some money from me every month. If, you know, every time a DSA chapter asks me to talk to them, I do it, you know, have very happily, you know, but like, I, I, I'm glad it exists. But like, I, I think that there, if you're to think about it structurally, there is a real limitation here, not just because, not just because of that class composition question, although that's part of it, right? You know, that, um, that this is what we have right now is largely a movement of, either sort of middle class or kind of downwardly mobile ex middle class, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, which I mean, on the one hand, that's innately a problem because just of, you know, sort of limited capacity to make social change, you know, with, with that chunk of the population, but also, um, you know, which I'm very much part of, right. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want anybody to be unclear on that. Right. You know, but, uh, um, you know, I'm an adjunct philosophy professor with a podcast. I don't, I don't know how I could be more part of it, right? You know, but uh, <laughs> Ben Bourgeois Burgess over here. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but try to be objective about it, right? You know, I think yeah. that uh, it's a problem not just because of that, or I think not even most significantly, maybe because of that. I mean, I was having a conversation with you the other night where you know, where you were saying some of this, not to blame you for the more controversial parts, what I'm about to say, this is, that's just me, but you know, they have a, uh, but like, I, I think that it's maybe a bigger problem because of obstacles that are built into that, just sort of given the way the American culture war is right now mm-hmm. to, um, to sort of using that as like kindling for a movement, you know, that's, of and not just for the working class, right? That they, that like, I think that, um, I think that there's a sort of conception of how to think about social justice. There's, there's, there's all sorts of cultural mores that are just actually really significant obstacles. I know when you say that some people will hear that as like, Oh, Ben thinks that like, you know, workers are all like, troglodyte racist Archie Bunker types and you know and 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 you you have to be one two to appeal to them or something and that's not at all what I'm saying right you know that's you know the you know like I think that most people who are you know in the multiracial working class most people who are even pretty sympathetic to like progressive social policy positions you know if you just don't come out of higher education you don't come out of a certain sort of background like that there there's a lot of sort of signaling and there's a lot of ways of expressing that, and there's a lot of stuff that's mixed into that that I think that you just, I think just is a built-in obstacle. I don't think it means that the sort of socialist movement we have right now might not play a useful role in helping to bring about something larger. But I, I, I think if we're going to be real about this, it is a big problem. Right, but also to to the point about you know 
the, the fact that like the working class actually for the most part wants good things and they want good outcomes yeah. for most other people they're actually like most people are actually good and decent um and mm-hmm. just stuck in pretty awful circumstances even if that wasn't true even if the working <laughs> class was all troglodyte racist the left would still have to figure out what to do about that uh, right. if it was going to totally. be a real left and i think this is something that like the left very much uh, has kind of approached these problems as, you know, here's my understanding of the world. And, you know, if people don't agree with it, then there's something wrong with them. And, you know, here and there, they've been like, when they've been successful, it's been when they've kind of put a ton of energy and resources into finding ways to communicate better how to like, how to bring people over to our side. And so in many ways, the left today still struggles with and still needs to get better at actually making itself accommodate to the needs and interests of working people that we say we want this better world we have a we have a very good sense of you know what's wrong with the world now and you know some good sense of of how to get from here to somewhere else that's better and it's incumbent on us to actually convince people to come along with us in that that we actually need to form relationships and solidarity and make ourselves useful to working people um but I do think I think it's worth saying, and people rightly would push oh. back against some of what we said yeah. and say, yeah, but there is the DSA is organizing. There, there is actually, you know, is this yeah. really defeat if there's actually still efforts going on right now? Campaigns, there's active campaigns right now. Oh, yeah. um, you know, if you're in an urban part of the country, you probably uh, there probably is a, a DSA or adjacent campaign in your mm-hmm. city, which is great. And um, sure. you know, that's so the left is active. Right. Um, and in some ways, you know, uh, I, I think back to, uh, you know, Dustin Costello and Jared Abbott wrote mm-hmm. a couple of pieces a few years ago, thinking through kind of the um, the the issues with working within the Democratic Party and trying to propose some new novel solutions to that. And part of that was, you know, proposing the idea of kind of like a heartland uh, where you win a number of elections uh, in not necessarily you don't want it to just all be like one city council, but you want, you know, building up um, a lot of left uh, electoral power across a region so that you can start to coordinate across a region and, and mm-hmm. basically hopefully supplant one of the two major parties. Um, and part of that has to do with kind of winning over the labor movement and kind of taking them away from the Democrats and build, pushing them into um, this would be something of a proto party or something. Yeah. In that sense, like I think you could make, it's maybe still too early and hopefully it's too early. It might either be too early yeah. or too late, but that that has somewhat started in actually places like New York and Pennsylvania and, and this kind of mm-hmm. part of the country. And so hopefully, you know, that, or at least, you know, maybe that will be uh, the result of this moment. They, we actually do get some like left in ascendance through very hard, diligent work. But it nevertheless, I think is true. I was um, mm-hmm. speaking with, a friend of mine, uh, David Alexis, who may be the audience, mm-hmm. if you're in New York, hopefully you know who he is. Um, and kind of thinking through this question, because I, it seems like the left or like what kind of makes up people coming into the left um, and like the spirit of it when there's new campaign energy usually is um, this time it'll be different. And mm-hmm. not in like, I mean, it can't, sometimes it often is kind of a cynical, well, you know, obviously it won't be if this time would be just like every other time. Um, but I think you need that. I think like that actually remains kind of the left's like 
engine in some ways. And it's, it is like a kind of a, it's, you know, uh, dysfunctional as it is, but like, you need that insofar as, um, you know, people do have experience, uh, in different campaigns and different elections and different union drives. Um, and you do, the left does need to touch on that history and say like, you know, actually there is reason to hope again. And this is why we can, we can win this time and convincing people, not just that, you know, a better world is possible, but that a better world, uh, is achievable through actual campaigns, through actual mm-hmm. political action. Um, I w- yeah. And I will, I will say along the lines of that last point that, um, I mean, in some ways it's still a relatively small thing in terms of the number of workers involved, uh, but, um, but I actually – I actually do get pretty excited about all the uh, the Starbucks unionizations because mm-hmm. um, it's I think it's incredibly useful that you just have this like parade of tangible victories that um, and and it's so visible right I mean this is this is you know they're everywhere you know like you you can um, and it's it's very easy for for people to you know to sort of involve themselves in some way and you know in in, in you know support of it and you know and and like even the sort of some small symbolic gesture of like going to the you know Starbucks where there's an organizing campaign and telling them your name is Union Strong or whatever mm-hmm. you know that like you know have uh, that uh, but like just just having just this very visible series of points on the board right i mean mm-hmm. like there's uh i think i think is is incredibly useful and it and it and again i mean it it points towards what we need you know because because you can't um you know even if like even if the the bernie campaign like even if bernie sanders had you know had overcome the numerous obstacles and you know it had actually won uh, the the 2020 election, right? You know, he became president. You know that, like, um, as amazing and positive as that would have been, you know, in in a lot of ways, right? I mean, that the and I I certainly don't, you know, I certainly think that there are there are lots of those ways, right? You know, but I I do I do still think that um, does that mean like we would have gotten like Medicare for all, like 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 the well. Not unless a lot of other stuff happened too, right? You right. know, since uh, since you know this is you know capital. I mean, obviously, is incredibly political, powerful in any capitalist society, or else it wouldn't be one. But they have right. a. But like it's, but particularly in the United States, right? You know that there's and and the and the organized working class is uh, is is so is so weak, right? There's there's so there's so there's so little of it, right? You know, and, and so I think having having something that is a tangible victory of exactly the kind of tangible victory that, that we need. And it's also national, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's huge, right? You know, just, just the fact that it's a, that, that it's a national campaign, you know, like that's, that's exciting, you know, that's exciting in and of itself, right? Cause, cause most people, especially cause most people being real about this, like most people who are sort of, around the left such as it exists right now right which is like you know a lot of what we mean by that is like left media you know they um or a lot of people who might even do something like show up to a dsa meeting like are people whose primary means of interface with politics i mean look 
Americans in general in 2022, their primary means of interface with politics is not like reading a local newspaper, right? You know, mm-hmm. they, it's, it's, you know, so, and particularly people who are likely to consume left media, who, who might even go to a DSA meeting or something, are people whose primary means of interface with politics is like, you know, social media is a lot of it, you know, and so it's so, uh, they're, you know, the, uh, the thing about that, good or bad, right? It just is what it is. Is that uh, if something's only going on in one place, they're probably not going to hear about it, even if they are in that place, right? You know, like right. so, like at, at least that you know that Starbucks organizing campaign is is like the Bernie campaign in the sense that it's a national thing that's very easy to get clued into. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Maybe just to to wrap this up and um, keep it keep it maybe the most concrete that we've kept it this whole mm. conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, just like in a moment of feeling like defeat, uh, what should we be doing? Or maybe a different way to pose that is, should we be learning yeah. value theory right now? Is that, <laughs> is that actually? Well, <laughs> well, what you should do is you should read my article of Jacobin yeah. where you learned that, uh, that, uh, in, in a certain sense, as interested as value theory is, um, you don't need to assume anything about it one way or the other to make sense of, of, uh, of the traditional Marxist charge of exploitation. And um, and then you can you know read some Gia Cohen and you can have a much better uh, better grasp on all of this. Uh, and look, I think that's a I think that's a good thing to do at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think it's I think it's like I think you could definitely OD on it, but it's uh, but it is uh, too much college. I, I, <laughs> <It's> overdosing <laughs> yeah. on college. I think that's the Felix Biederman line. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Uh, so I I think that's. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you could definitely become somebody who that's, that's what you do. And at mm-hmm. which point you're probably, you know, not as useful to a larger movement as you could be otherwise. Um, and, and I, I do think there's some value, even when you're thinking about stuff like that, to like try to think about how it, inter- how, how that interfaces with something you could actually like explain mm-hmm. to, to an ordinary person that, you know, like, like if you, um, like that, like actually having that kind of in the back of your head, like how would you, like if you were talking to somebody who wasn't immersed in all this stuff, right? You know, you say like, and and you and you wanted to not even explain what you mean when you say capitalism exploits workers, because that would imply that you said that and then you had to explain it, right? You know, but right. like get across the underlying thought, right? You know, how would you do it? I think is useful, but yeah, look, I think theoretical clarity is good. I'm for that, right? But I I, I think that the uh, but I, I think it is important to to stay engaged in um, in the kind of in like real world politics, you know. And so, like stuff like supporting union organizing, I think is really important. And also, I think that like there's a. I also just think like, look, whatever time you're going to spend thinking about politics, and I really hope on a human level that that's not all of it, right? You know, but like whatever time you uh, you spend thinking about politics, I mean, I think that I think it's I think it's useful even in a Maybe especially right in a in a period of defeat to um, you know to think about how to you know to like sort of stay focused on the kinds of political issues that would actually come up when you're talking to people outside of the left you know that that could actually you know it's like what are the big things that you think that like just ordinary people you know your your uh, your I don't know your liberal 
at whatever, right? You know, like what what are the big things that you think that they're getting wrong that are like not just like, oh, they haven't signed on to every facet of your worldview, but like what are the big things you think they're going in fundamentally wrong directions politically because they're getting wrong and how can you go about sort of explaining to them in a relatable way why it's right? And if you're going to have a breakthrough in the future, you know, I mean, I, I think you're going to make yourself more useful to that if you do that than if you – you know, spend all of your time sort of um, retreating into, you know, retreating purely into study group kinds of activities like 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 do the do the study group. But like, you know, like maybe maybe that's maybe that could just be one one part of what you do. Right. Yeah. And if the if the study group, if the if, you know, going into the Marxology, going into, you know, learning all the classics, if it's just because it's like it's for its own sake and it's like subcultural and like you know makes you feel good probably don't do it actually like <laughs> like get a better hobby there's like yeah but, no absolutely yeah it, like like, yeah, like, like don't 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 let your identity get too tangled up in that uh i think is i think is yeah. i think is excellent you but know i think is excellent it, advice read it if like you're actually like read it with the intention of like this is meant to be useful like how do i actually make the mm-hmm. world a better place and um because uh we don't just study the world for its own sake we do it because we actually want to change the world and uh malpractice is actually pretty bad so mm-hmm. uh it's it's worth it to try to get these things right um and so if you have the the time and means and like ben saying you know there's actually quite a bit going on with with union drives right now. So um, if you want something to do, uh, there's some pretty pretty immediate kind of first conclusions about like you know how to make the world a better place if you're a socialist. So, anyways, uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, I appreciate your thoughts. I hope others do as well. Um, and again, you should all check out uh, his uh, piece on G.A. Cohen and uh, exploitation. Um, and the, by the time this comes out, there's probably like 10 other Ben Burgess Jacobin pieces. So you should read all of those as well. Um, so thanks again. Uh, on that note, uh, we are, you know, speaking of left defeat, we're now actually going to go to the left in power. Um, and we're going to go over to Rene Rojas and Ben Fogel. Um, but before that, uh, you got to hear a quick word from our sponsor, Versa Books. Join the Verso Book Club and support the future of radical publishing. Subscribers get every book that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website for as long as you're a subscriber. Join in July and get your first month free. This month's selections are... Red Valkyries, Feminist Lessons from Five Revolutionary Women by Kristen Godsey, a history of five prominent socialist women active in the 19th and 20th centuries in Eastern Europe. Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation by Paris Marx, an expose of the problems with Silicon Valley's visions of the future. Against Borders, The Case for Abolition by Gracie May Bradley and Luke de Nerona, a manifesto for why we need to get rid of borders. And The Poverty of Ethics by Anat Matar, an analysis of why the left should reclaim ethics and morality for itself. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Hi, uh, this is Benjamin Fogel, contributing editor at Jackman Magazine. And today we're very lucky to be talking to Rene Rojas, who is the author of a new piece for Catalyst uh, called uh, Chile's Resurgent Left and also a assistant professor at SUNY Binghamton. Uh, hi, Rene. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Uh, thanks for coming on. So let's get right into it. So um, without further ado, we have to break down a little bit of context for our viewers. So can you just basically break down the entire fortunes of Chilean democracy from the post-Pinochet period to 2019, where a story really kicks off? Yeah, sure. I mean, Chile is an interesting case in Latin America because, as I think most people who follow the region know, it's considered, you know, widely considered a, a huge success for it. It's really a poster child for a neoliberal, democratic neoliberal development. Um, all this began, as you mentioned, in 1990 when the country transitioned from an authoritarian military dictatorship um, under Pinochet to a you know, new form, a new democratic regime. Now, the transition from authoritarianism to democracy was key because in many ways it locked in place some characteristics, right, which are vital to understanding the, the Chilean case. In the first place, what it did with the trans, with the settlement, right, to return to democracy did was that it enshrined, um, you know, pro-market neoliberal uh, growth model for the country. And it did so really by shaping the politics of, of the country. And there were two key components there. The first was that in order to, to defend, right, this, this free market order and elite interest, it put in place, it kind of engineered, right, a, a, a set of institutions that put in place uh, an oligarchic political class that shared power, a center left that dominated politics. Um, in fact, they didn't, the center left coalition called the Concertación, um, composed of the Christian Democrats and the Socialist parties, mainly, um, didn't lose an election between 1990 and 2010. Um, but it was it was that coalition, along with the center-right coalition, the liberal kind of um, right, that dominated politics. And it did so largely through the electoral system that was put in place, where the two largest parties pretty much took all representation and um, had all the political power in the country. So that was the first key component to the political, the democratic political regime that managed neoliberalism and cheated. The second one, though, which is as crucial, was the demobilization of collective action, of popular movement, of protest movements from below. This was a deliberate um, effort on the part of the new political class to cut ties with to, to uh, make sure that its parties, its institutions, in no way supported, right, organized working and popular sectors. And so those are the two key ingredients that shaped politics of the country. And combined, um, what they led to was what's considered the success story. You know, um, high growth rates, the highest growth rates, you know, for about 15 years in Latin America. That in turn led to a reduction in poverty, right? And all this together meant that it was a pretty stable um, society in spite of the fact that it was one of the most um, commodified societies in the world. Um, it managed to secure political stability and avoid social unrest. Now, all of that began unraveling in the late aughts, approximately. By this point, the, this model that had been established was really starting to experience symptoms of exhaustion. And that was first, I think, manifest in the rise of new protest movements. And two in particular deserve mention, a student movement in 2006 and 2007, 
that really, really shook um, socialist Michel Bachelet's first presidency. And around the same time, a, a wildcat strike among um, contracted miners in copper, which is Chile's main industry. Um, five years, four or five years later, a larger student movement exploded on the scene. And that was the university student movement in 2011-2012 that really, really, for the first time in the post-transition period, put kind of mass social movement politics on the scene. Um, that really opened the floodgates, as it were, for other types of, of mass organizing and mass movements. Um, the retirees movement called No Mas IFP, which stands for No More IFP, which are the privatized pension funds, um, grew to um, hun uh, hundreds of thousands and up to m a million participants when they would go out in March. And then the, the young women's feminist movement as well, which also could bring together um, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people on to the streets. In the meantime, what was happening, and this has really, I think, gotten less attention, um, both in the press, but also among, um, you know, critical scholars, is that there was a revitalization of the labor movement. And we should have kept our eye on this. After all, one of the things that sparked this new cycle of protests was the miners' movement of 2007. But um, the main thing to, to, to note is that um, for 10 years, beginning around 2007, there's this huge resurgence of, of um, industrial activity, industrial protest. Um, and then within that, what's also noteworthy is the fact that um, there are key sectors um, of the working class that were some of the most active, so some of the most militant, and they're precisely um, workers in Chile's strategic industries. In copper, which brings in, you know, uh, represents a vast majority of, of Chile's exports, um, huge chunk of GDP, and um, also important were the dock workers, um, who went on a series of wildcat strikes um, in the mid-teens, uh, right? So all of that w was started to happening. Started happening, excuse me, um, about you know, 10, 20 years into the the democratic transition. Okay, so let's jump forward a bit to 2019. So from 2019, really until the present, where we now have a left-wing government, we have a uh, constitutional reform process, we saw a series of explosions in Chile, almost unexpected. Yeah. But uh, we've seen a series of explosions, like massive protest movements from Egypt to Brazil, uh, across the world, but often they resulted in right-wing outcomes or amorphous apolitical movements. But something different happened in Chile. We saw a sort of concrete political form emerge from these. So what happened from 2019, really, until the election last, last year, I believe? Yeah, a, a lot happened, and it has totally, totally upended um, Chile's political system, as you know. And one thing we, you know, didn't really, I didn't describe was the actual uprising. So uh, that 10 year cycle of protests eventually kind of exploded into a generalized um, uprising and, and rebellion in October of 2019. And that set in motion, right, a series of events which have now culminated in two things. The election of Gabriel Boric, uh, a left wing, um, you might call him a new radical or 
representative of, of Chile's new left in December of last year, and also a constituent assembly, which has uh, written a draft proposal, which uh, was uh, presented uh, last week to the public and which will be voted on in a plebiscite um, in, in September. So as you know, it's important to understand how you know, this mass rebellion that erupted somewhat spontaneously, it was not predicted, was not anticipated, was certainly not called for by any of the new uh, movements that were on the scene, how that ends up culminating, right, in these uh, new forms of politics and the election of, of a uh, very left reform government in, in Chile. And I think that's where what I had started to mention earlier really comes into play. The old political system, the old party system, um, really disintegrated, right, to the point where the old center-left and the old, you know, center-right that had shared power back and forth lost pretty much all legitimacy, all credibility, and lost their, their uh, mass support. Very importantly, in the meantime, um, a new left was was formed. It was first formed, in fact, as a coalition in 2017 or leading up to the 2017 elections as a broad front or frente amplio um, of these new left parties, very small at the time, but they broke through with about 20% of the vote. Many of these parties had been established and led by um, militants of the student of the 2011-2012 student movement, including um, Boric himself and other key members of his of his cabinet right now. So that was an important development that allowed for the discontent, allowed for the unrest to be channeled in this uh, left direction. There has been, of course, a, a rise of a new kind of re, you know, very harsh, um, you know, reactionary Bolsonaro type right in Chile, but. And in fact, um, its candidate, Cast, Jose Antonio Cast, um, which broke from the center-right coalition to form this, you know, more extreme right, won the first round elections um, at the end of last year, uh, in, in November, I believe, of 2021. But the fact that these new social movements, these new organ activists and organizers, had come together to create a um, a left coalition, a left alliance, right, that was able to um, win over and channel a lot of the discontent with Chile's neoliberal neoliberal system. I think was was pivotal in allowing for, you know, for now a resolution to the crisis in this more progressive left wing direction. So that when the protest and the 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 rebellion was at its height. Right, about two to three weeks into the the mass uprising uprising of, of last of sorry the fall of two thousand nineteen, the um, key figures of this new left, including Boric himself centrally, um, were able to wrest from the government and the entire old political class a massively important um, concession, which was reviled at the time, heavily criticized, particularly from his left. But um, what it was was an agreement to hold a plebiscite to ask Chileans if they wanted to rewrite the constitution. Now, of course, Chileans have been clamoring for a, a new um, constitution 
um, since the return to democracy in 1990, because what we had was a kind of forcefully inherited constitution imposed by Pinochet, the 1980 constitution. And so when the plebiscite was held um, in 2020, uh, the uh, public came out overwhelmingly um, for a, uh, a new constitution and voted in the plebiscite uh, to hold elections for a, a constituent assembly. So I think the, I, you know, the, to wrap up, the fact that these left activists, social movement activists, right, um, had the, the clarity and the vision to actually um, uh, found, right, uh, a, an alliance of political parties that would dispute power and fight for, for state, central state power, um, uh, on the one hand, was, was, was crucial in all of this. And secondly, the fact that uh, you know most people who mobilized during the pro the the cycle of protests leading up to 2019 and during the rebellion itself recognized this as an option, realized how important it was to not only um, protest and cause disruption on the street, but also to uh, channel the discontent into um, competition for for state. I think those things were, were crucial. Uh, we'll return to the subject of the Constituent Assembly and the movements that uh, took this demand up a bit later. But I'm going to ask you a sort of more general question, but you can relate to Chile specifically, which is, uh, it's according to my analysis, at least, um, across Latin America, we've seen in the last few years a return of the left. Many uh, predicted the pink tide had uh, fell through and receded, but from uh, old countries with traditional lefts, such as Bolivia, uh, to countries which have never really had the left in power, or at least haven't had for a significant amount of time, such as Mexico and Colombia, we've had uh, new left governments being elected or center-left governments. So part of my analysis, at least, is indicates that part of this is due to the fact that the center-right, as well as the far-right, in the cases of people like uh, Jair Bolsonaro, have been unable to govern effectively. They've been unable to offer a model of growth, offer a political compact or mode of governance that um, is stable. Can you explain to us, in the context of Chile, what happened in terms of this political establishment? Why did the government... Uh, fall apart? Why did this order so much praised by, uh, you know, American international press, the Pinochet neoliberal miracle uh, fall through and the political order collapse? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot in, in what you bring up in that, in that question, and I'll, I'll try to take it piece uh, by piece. Um, in terms of the more general uh, regional outlook, um, it's really interesting. I think it's correct to say that um, centrist and right-wing forces have um, demonstrated right, an inability to govern uh, neoliberalism. And they lost legitimacy. Um, they lost, as I said earlier, any kind of broad popular appeal. And um, many of them were... Um, taken down through you know, mass mobilizations or voted out of office through the ballot box. And in my estimation, 
that has more to do with the broad political class that emerged throughout the region in what, you know, this might be overgeneralizing, but what you might consider the, the post-authoritarian period, so after the 80s into the 90s, right? Um, centrist forces um, returned to power, democratic forces, right, with the task of now governing um, this kind of extreme market orders throughout society and uh, doing so democratically in ways that ensured governability and profits. Um, and of course, they, they weren't able to do so um, for a number of reasons. And I think the Ch Chilean case helps illustrate um, why they, they weren't, um, they didn't manage uh, to, to, to secure right, stability and governability, if you want to use those terms. Um, Chilean case is interesting because, as, as I said, growth expanded, um, you know, very high rates. Poverty was reduced as well. Um, coming out of the dictatorship, Chile had like a 40% poverty rate. It was reduced to um, close to single digits, depending on what counts you use. Um, but at the same time, what happened is that you had just enormous growth also in, in inequality. And Chile and other Latin American countries um, became even more unequal than they had been. And the region is historically the most unequal region in the world. But under you know pro-market orders throughout the region, inequality in most of these countries grew um, enormously. So uh, there's that. What did that mean? It meant that you know for huge chunks of the population, right, um, who depended on the market to get by to secure basic goods, um, you know, healthcare, housing, um, education, etc. You know, they faced high levels of insecurity and inability to do so, large chunks of, of the population, right? And that all, I think, came to a head in the teens um, after the, the Great Recession and everything that's come since then um, has really, really, I think, um, placed enormous barriers on the political class's inability to keep on producing growth, keep on generating economic expansion. Right. And so those things mixed in a really ex explosive way. And I think Chile is the best example that that illustrates that. So that at that point, you know, this kind of centrist, moderate governance um, scheme has completely exhausted itself and has shown itself uh, that it's incapable of continuing to reduce growth, continuing to give people decent, um, relatively uh, decent paying jobs, etc. So that I think that's the, the very generalized um, way of looking at it. And I'm using the Chilean example to exemplify it. Um, but one of the results, of course, of earlier um, rebellions and earlier uh, upsurges in, in popular mobilization was throughout the region, the emergence of what you know, scholars and journalists and uh, others call pink tide regimes, these kind of semi-populist reform regimes, and um, I think most most exemplified by uh, Chavez in Venezuela and Morales and the Mas in, in Bolivia. So if we're going to talk about the pink tide governments, and again, uh, we're seeing a sort of second wave in some of these political forces have uh, emerged anew and returned to power, and we might be on the verge of, a, you know, for instance, electoral victory, the Pete in um Brazil, we've also seen Mexico and Colombia, as I mentioned earlier, elect 
left-wing governments for basically the first time in their history, uh, or at least since the 1930s in Mexico's case. Um, so you have a particular analysis which you produced in Catalyst in previous essays, as well as this essay on the pink tide. Um, what makes the Chilean government, the Chilean yeah. opportunity, which you argue has better strategic potential than the sort of classical pink tide governments of uh, Morales and Chavez, uh, what makes this possible? What are the differences between the sort of classical mode of pink tide governance and what's been happening in Chile? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, and it really um, kind of motivated me and pushed me to think of what's distinctive about the Chilean case and whether there is potential, right, for a new type of left to emerge in Chile um, as compared to the lefts that emerge in, in pink type countries. Um, and I think that my the way I approach it, right, is to look at two things. Uh, to look at what was happening in those countries relative to the uh, recent developments in Chile in terms of their uh, party systems, their political systems, but also, right, that might, you might call that a kind of from below, I mean, sorry, from above look at the situation, but also what was happening in terms of the composition of the sectors, the, the vast popular sectors, toiling sectors um, that mobilized, right, against the old governing regimes. Um, in the case of the Ping Tide, two things are, are key, I think. In terms of the party systems, they really um, underwent a rapid and abrupt collapse, right? And it leaves a total void almost so that new political forces like the mass in Bolivia, like all the um, groups and kind of proto-parties that coalesce around Chavez in Venezuela, they're able to take almost full control of, um, of government and of many state institutions. Um, that, that happens kind of, that's what's happening in terms of, of the governing institutions in those countries. With respect to the, the popular sectors that um, mobilized, right, and organized these cycles, these waves of protests that brought these new forces to power, um, because of the antecedent decades of uh, pro-market right, uh, reform, right, um, and the effects of these kind of the restructuring of the economies, um, most of the popular sectors that backed right, the new left in these countries came from the informal um, sector. Really very marginal forces in terms of their position in the economy, their position in key institutions of, of these societies. Peripheral in many respects, right? People who you know, toiled on the street, scraping by, um, people from small towns or the, the peripheries of the, of the cities, right? They were key backers of, of the pink tide government. So what that meant in my analysis is that these new left populists are thrust into power. They have, you know, um, almost full control of state institutions, right? And they respond to their backers who are primarily the constituents behind them, primarily from the informal sector, right? And so they immediately... Um, enter into a clientelistic relationship with them where 
they use the rents of commodities, which at the time started to increase on the global market, um, to redistribute income and revenue down to their informal supporters. That's not quite the situation in Chile. And the difference between what we saw in Chile in recent years, um, juxtaposed to what we saw in the pink chat, I think is the key to figuring out whether or not um, what we're witnessing is the emergence of a new and more promising left in Chile. So if you take each of those components one by one, you can see what I mean. In terms of the old ruling order, the old partisan system, party system, right? While it has undergone a process of disintegration, it didn't fully and suddenly unravel the way it did in, in many pink tide countries. What that means is that the new ruling coalition, which is this new left represented by Boric and his cohort, um, in alliance with the old left, and I neglected to mention the old left um, earlier in this interview, and by that I really mean the Communist Party, right, which has a long tradition of representing the working class in Chile, which had been highly marginalized, but has um, experienced somewhat of a comeback, right? What it means is that when this coalition comes together, right, right now, um, again, between Frente Amplio and the Communist Party called Apruebo Dignidad in Chile, uh, which came together to fight for the in the constituent elections, what it means is that it's facing right uh, contestation in the state um, against uh, forces that, that are still around, that it really has to do battle with, unlike, let's say, Chavez in, in Venezuela, right? That means that the coalition itself is still cohering and its position within the state is still um, being competed for. That's happening at that level. In terms of the popular constituencies, right, that rebelled in this mass uprising uh, and that had been organizing for about a decade up until then and that backed Apro Dignidad in the constituent elections and then Boric um, in the first and second round of the presidential elections, right, uh, they're actually characterized a bit differently. They're comprised of, yes, it's true, many informalized sectors of the working class who occupy marginal and peripheral uh, positions in the economy and in key social institutions. But as I said earlier, right, they're also, this new left is also backed by a revitalized labor movement and um, reorganized unions that have acquired a new confidence that have been striking, that have been calling for, you know, sector-wide strikes in the case of mining, in the case of for instance, dock workers that I mentioned, but also in, you know, in some public worker, public employee sectors as well, right? They've really taken the initiative. Um, and they have, I think, right, compared to the key popular constituencies behind um, some of the, the main pink tide um, governments, they, they, they possess a structural power which the mostly informal workers that back the uh, back Chavez and Morales um, didn't and don't possess today. So I think the combination that we're seeing, and it's still you know we have to see, we have to see how it ends up playing out, right? But of a new left alliance that is still cohering, that's still battling for positions in the state, right? And therefore is trying to redefine key state institutions institutions of economic and social governance on the one hand, and um, its popular sector backers 
that aren't just in the informal peripheral poor, right, that are demanding redistribution of rents. Instead, they're also comprised of, you know, this new labor movement, um, which is demanding more structural, or at least has the ability to demand more structural reforms. I think we're in for a more promising um, uh, mix, right, that could chart the path for uh, a more successful 21st century socialist left, if you will. Uh, we'll return to the subject of the prospect of Chile later, but I want to ask a little bit more detail, uh, something you bring up, and which maybe is some strategic lessons for those of us who are outside of Chile. In the Chilean case, we have a very interesting United Front in that it, apart from the strategic layers of the working class and the labor movement, we also have a revitalized feminist movement, which has been able to win successful reforms. We have a student movement, which has made began as a sort of anti-austerity movement, uh, and that has been able to sort of bridge the gap between the campus and wider society, and sort of unite together in a way which we see these sort of divisions among these different movements uh, and the working class in Europe and uh, the United States, for instance. Uh, so what was this process they came together? Um, was this the product of hard strategic work? Was this something which was unexpected? And uh, for instance, I mean, could you point out the connection to say Chile's anti-abortion struggle and how this sort of emerged together with an anti-austerity struggle and the revitalization of labor in a way that was able to build a winning electoral coalition. It's interesting. You know, I think the ingredients are in place and that is due in large part to tactical and strategic decisions made along the way. But uh, I would, I think I'd, I'd be overstating, I'd be way too optimistic if, um, you know, I would if I argued that um, these different forces have already cohered into right a well coordinated um, block, right, um, with a unified strategic vision. It's not it's not there yet, but I think what was key in the Chilean case, right, was that representatives of these new mass movements students, the feminist movement, which, as you say, is probably the largest in the world in many, in many ways. Um, um, can you just, um, can you just expand on that a little bit? Um, sure, sure. So, so, and there's a connection between the student movement and, and the feminist movement. The student movement that um, mobilized in 2011, 2012, right, was, as I said, the first mass movement that Chile uh, witnessed in the post-transition period. It's, it's kind of in decline right now or somewhat dormant. But what it did was that it, it helped spark the rise of other mass movements. Um, one that doesn't get mentioned often is um, the, a new uh, public workers kind of um, mobilization, mostly teachers. A lot of these students went on to become teachers. They organized in their unions. Um, but also, uh, they had a very, very important influence on a new layer of militant young women that start organizing on campuses around 2018 um, against narrower demands, very important, but narrower uh, demands against discrimination, against um, sexual harassment and assault, 
right? But then it just explodes, it massifies over 2019 and 2020, where these coordinating bodies, right, um, start to gain much more, uh, much wider membership. Um, these collectives, I should say, um, these feminist collectives start to appeal to a wider membership and then start coordinating, right? And so they, they launch these uh, nationwide days of action and, and during those years to the point where I think in 2020, um, 2 million uh, feminists, uh, not all women, men as well, but mostly women, mobilized uh, on the streets. Right? They are largely connected to, uh, not in a very tight organic way, somewhat still loosely, but very much connected to this new left, um, Boric's generation, right? And so what I think was key there that not only the leadership of these new mass movements decided to compete for state power and to form this alliance with the Communist Party, which to me is, is just, it's a historic um, development, right? Because it brings together the key components of a new left that had been out, in, that had been in the wilderness in Chile for 50 years, right? But not only does do their kind of more political representatives and cadre uh, decide to compete for state power and influence in, in governing institutions, the movements themselves, with some trepidation, with disagreements, right, also um, decide to back these new coalitions. They don't do it evenly, and as I said, they do it with you know fraught with, with tension, and that led to um, a lot of, of damaging. Um, developments and episodes, for instance, in the constituent assembly, where there was a, a, a lack of coordination among the new social movements and representatives. But a large chunk of them did decide that, again, competing for state power, backing this new political coalition was instrumental to winning the reforms that, that they demanded. Um, this brings me to a sort of interesting, sort of unique part of this Chilean experience, which is the Constituent Assembly itself. So more often than we're not, we've seen uh, center-left or left governments take power and deal with the limitations imposed on them by the existing political system and the constitutional order, which has often emerged, particularly in Latin America, under the supervision of military dictatorships or uh, a ruling class which is managing a transition to democracy. Brazil strikes me as a perfect example. But in this case, before we have the election of a left government, which we'll return to after this, we have a massive, massive movement which successfully wins the right to change the constitution, to produce something new. So in terms of less strategic possibilities, particularly for those who in the United States have been used to the same sort of inadequate and depressing document that's been maintained for 200 plus years, uh, that you have the ability before you take power to really manage to propose a new set of uh, limits and visions on taking state power, which is a constitutional reform process. So what happened there and what is the current state of the constitutional reform process, constituent assembly process, as it's called? Yeah, what what happened was that in, you know, as I said, just to go back a, a bit and, and then I'll take up the thread um, in terms of more recent developments. You know, during the uprising of 2019, October 2019, um, the political class, you know, I have to emphasize, at the time, the central right was in power. But the uprising wasn't just against the central right government. It was against the um, power-sharing regime 
you know, in which the center right uh, ruled alongside the center left. I mean, these are opposing coalitions, but they kind of alternate and shared power and roughly agreed on policy. Right? And the dominant force there was was the center left. So the rebellion really was not just against the Piñera, the uh, Sebastián Piñera center right government. It was against the entire post-authoritarian neoliberal regime. Right? So I just want to emphasize that and, and very clearly so. Um, but and so the the rebellion is ends up being kind of uncontainable. The fury, the rage, right, just would not die down. They send in the cops, send in the military to the streets. Brutal repression, right? Hundreds of people lost eyes, their eyesight, etc. As you know, the military and the police were shooting directly at people's faces to try to get people off the streets, and they can't. That just you know, the rebellion would not die down. People would not leave the streets, and that's when. Um, Boric, who at that point was a, in Congress, right, helps broker this agreement, which is really a concession by the entire post-authoritarian political class to say, look, the rebellion, we, we don't know how to end it. Why don't we hold a plebiscite where we ask Chileans, um, do you want a new constitution? Everyone understood at the time that although, you know, the rebellion was spontaneous. Demands were mixing in a somewhat amorphous way. There was general agreement on the fact that people wanted a new constitution. I don't really like this term too much, but it's a new social contract, if you will, that would move things away from this market-governed social system, right? And so that happens in, in um, November 15th, I believe, of 2019, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, Boric gets heavily criticized by the left, by the party that becomes, uh, you know, um, his coalition partner, the communists, for instance, and by other sectors, even within the Frente Amplio alliance and within his own party. Right? Heavily criticized because many people viewed that, one, the entire regime could have been toppled through mass mobilization on the street. Secondly, which I find to be a more persuasive critique, which I just, you know, was speaking recently to activists who are, you know, um, on the streets at the time, uh, they felt that the the agreement was fine, right? But that at the time, this new left could have um, won other concessions, right? Like immediately getting the uh, ruling the, the government at the time to let's say um, abolish chunks of student debt, right? Or or some something else policy wise could have been won. In any event, the 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 agreement is made. Elections are held. Uh, they're delayed because of the, the pandemic. They're held the following year. And Chileans overwhelmingly, right, by 8 to 2 ratio, vote um, not only to rewrite the Constitution, but there are two questions in the plebiscite, also to elect, right, a an entire new set of representatives who would rewrite the Constitution, right? And in those elections that are then occurred a few months later, um, the general elections of last year, um, you know, this new left did very well. Uh, social movement and more kind of independent, autonomous um, uh, uh, lists that, that that competed did quite well, and the old political parties just um, were, were were drubbed mercilessly. Um, and so, the, cons the the new convention, the or constituent assembly. Uh, started meeting a year ago to rewrite the constitution. 
It took a year to do so. It, we can go into it later. It made you know, a ton of mistakes along the way. Um, but it has now settled on a draft um, with, I think, over 250 articles, right? But that um, they've agreed on, um, which will now be up for an approval uh, plebiscite in, in two months. Um, and if that, uh, if, if um, the Chilean public approves it, right, as you mentioned, I think it's going to be a huge uh, victory strategically for two reasons. First, that it will rewrite the rules of the game, right, in ways that are fa favorable to working in popular sectors. But secondly, it's also politically, it will be a massive shot in the arm to the new government so that the Boric administration, right, can uh, promote successfully its reform agenda and pass a number of policies that have um, wide, wide appeal. Now, in a very strange turn of events, we're looking at a situation in which the, uh, the Constitution might not be approved. Chilean voters might actually, in this plebiscite in two months, vote to reject it, right? Which is astonishing considering everything that's happened up until now, right? And that's, I think that's uh, worth uh, discussing further, both why that's the case, why right now polls show that a majority of Chileans might reject the new constitution, but also what, what the consequences of that would be. Um, could you answer the questions? That, I mean, uh, I think this is an important thing because, you know, constitutional reform uh, is, you know, a big process and it's, uh, it's initiated by uh, mass movements in the left. It's a huge victory, but what's happening right now? I mean, why is this so? What is the content of this constitution? And why is it facing these hurdles to its introduction? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Obviously, it's going to be decisive. Um, decisive for the reasons I just mentioned. One, if it loses, we go back to the 1980 constitution, Pinochet's constitution once again, right? Um, which again re would 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 um, reaffirm all the pro market um, policies and and um, governance institutions which that constitution put in place, right? So it would be a massive massive setback, um, and of course it would be just this huge blow for this new emerging left in Chile, and it will lose the initiative. In my estimation, it will be the end, you know, of the Boric government and experiment less than one year into um, um, his, his tenure. Um, so the question is, is why? How could that happen? Is it because, as many kind of uh, neoliberal uh, outlets like The Economist, right, are, are, are arguing now and other, other kind of um, pro-market uh, observers are saying, is it because um, Chileans don't like what's in it, and in particular, they don't like the social rights and protections that the new constitution would confer? In other words, is it because um, they're opposed to uh, basic fundamental guarantees like guarantee of dig uh, dignified work, of housing, of access to water, of access to education, and the fact that the constitution makes the state responsible for delivering this? Is that the reason as, you know, neoliberal think tanks and, and um, more conservative 
sectors of, of the political class in Chile are now arguing? Or is it for another reason? Well, I think it's um, fair to say, you know, given everything that happened, given what propelled people onto the streets in 2019, given what pushed them to vote for a new left in the constituent elections and then in the general elections that followed the, the, um, a year later, and in what polls show right now. Polls show right now that majorities of, of a significant majority of Chileans support the reforms that Boric um, has announced, tax reform, public pension reform, health care reform, etc., right? So given all that, it seems to me quite obvious that um, Chileans now, um, at least according to, again, public opinion polls, are saying they might not pass, they might not approve the Constitution. Um, it's clear to me that that's not because they don't want those key social reforms that um, offer universal social provision um, for for masses of, of Chileans. I don't think that's the reason. So you have to ask why why is this the case? Another possibility is, is that it's because the right wing, you know, fear and hate campaign and anti-communist com campaign has been really influential and Chileans have been scared into submission. And as, you know, the right wing, it, you know, through fake news, through WhatsApp, through Facebook, whatever, is convincing people that the new constitution will take their homes away, will force their children to become gay or, you know, all these ridiculous claims. Well, I think it can't be that either because all of those tactics were used um, throughout and they weren't effective previously, right? So they might have an impact now, but then the question becomes, well, why are they effective now, now whereas they hadn't been all along, right? And I think the reason that the Constitution and its uh, the possibility of it being approved now is in question is not because of the substance of what it says. It's not because suddenly Chileans have become um, uh, anti-communist or they're, you know, they're scared of, of universal social provision or they've never liked it. I don't think that's the case. I think that they're reacting not to these reforms, but to the politics of the constituent assembly itself. And throughout the convention, the deliberations, the debates, the left, and mostly the independent social movement left that did, as I mentioned earlier, really well in the elections, um, essentially they made fools of themselves. And in making fools of themselves, they, um, I think, were successful in getting Chileans to uh, reason in the following way. Wait, if this is the left, I'm not sure this is what we want. Right. But again, they're reacting to the behavior and the histrionics of this layer of the left, not to the Constitution itself. What, what do I mean by that? Well, there were a number of things. First of all, there was just very strange bickering and sectarianism right, among this new crop of people that got elected into the assembly that um, you know, had some experience in, in grassroots roots organizing and activism, right? Started fighting against one another instead of taking on the mass grievances of working in poor Chileans. Um, they also, in many ways, adopted, right, a language and uh, a, a discourse, a political discourse that was quite alienating, right, 
using terms that people really didn't even understand, focusing their priorities on narrow identitarian concerns, right? And in doing so, right, what they did is they took the debate at the, the heart of the assembly, which again should have been debating the political and social future of the country. They took it in a direction that most working Chileans just weren't interested in or didn't resonate with, with, with them at all. Um, things improved over the, the ensuing months, right? Where uh, rather than a focus on, you know, uh, what are the different cultural and political identities of the Chilean um, polity, um, you know, how, how do we give the earth a set of rights and treat nature the same way we treat people. I mean, we could be in favor of that, but it just, as I said, didn't resonate with working people. Once the convention got around to actually discussing the social protections and social rights that most people had been clamoring for, for for over a decade, things improved. But by then the damage had been done. And the right wing was really effective, right, in pointing to that and saying, look, these people don't represent your interests. In fact, this is a dangerous deviation, and um, we're offering order. We're offering a return to normalcy, um, and I think that um, did have uh, that did register with people. Again, not because people reject the social, the universal social rights and protections, but because they lost confidence in the politics of the assembly itself. So. In a move which probably has the um, remaining surviving Chicago boys and the decaying corpses of the of Milton Friedman and Co. and uh, unfortunately we still have um, a certain uh, Kissinger among us uh, rolling in their graves or at least giving them uncomfortable nights. Uh, the the country which famously Salvador Allende, the great democratic socialist experiment, was defeated through military intervention with uh, the assistance, of course, of the CIA in the United States, has just elected a left-wing government. I mean, this is not only hugely symbolic in a massive reversal, hopefully, of the paradigm for the entire region, but uh, the world as a whole, if we view this as one of the origin stories of neoliberalism. Um, so how has the government been doing? Uh, what are the sort of policies brought it to power? Um, for me, I'm just going to offer some of my own analysis from my work uh, elsewhere, particularly in Brazil, is that one of the things that happens when you take power is, it, I mean, taking power and state power inevitably involves some compromises. You are going to have to make some uh, pacts in order which things you prioritize, how you form coalitions, how you govern. Of course, Chile, as I was pointed earlier, has this constituent assembly process, which makes it a little bit different. But... In some senses, uh, what I regard as a success, at least for a left-wing government, particularly in a so-called middle-double-income country, developing country, is if you pass reforms that make it easier to govern the next time. Maybe you might lose the next election, but if you weaken your enemies, if you do something which paves the way for an easier return to power and way to govern, that itself, in some ways, is a strategic success. So in terms of this analysis, how would you assess the current fortunes and programs in this government. Yeah, I you know as I was, I was saying um, in my in my early response, 
what happened to the Constituent Assembly ended up hurting Boric, both in his campaign, right, where he was associated with these more kind of fringe, identitarian, narrow um, views of, of the new left, right, um, and has hurt him since. Um, because he entered government in, in a fairly weak position, right? However, you know, the the blows that he has had to um, withstand, right, are more conjunctural in nature. The fact of the matter is that the forces that are most, have been most weakened, and I would say fatally so in the um, Chilean political system, are those that ruled for over 30 years. The center-left, the you know pro-market, neoliberal center-left and center-right political class. They've been defeated. And so that gives Boric, even if his administration has started off with you know, a number of mistakes and a number of blows, as I, as I mentioned, it, it gives him, I think, the latitude um, to keep moving forward. And as you said, to um, acquire under his belt, right, a key set of reforms, we used to call non-reformist reforms, perhaps, that on the one hand strengthen um, popular and working sectors, and on the other hand, um, weaken our enemies, weaken uh, business, right? And, 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 and uh, rearrange the balance of forces, to use kind of that old language in ways that are favorable to working and poor people. That's still very possible in Chile. Um, what Boric has to contend with now, mostly, I think, is the um, emergence of this new far right, uh, which I think poses the biggest danger to him. And what will be, I think, decisive in the short run is what happens in the, in the uh, plebiscite, in the um, constitutional plebiscite. If people reject it, if approval, as they call it, approval loses, right? I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think he's kind of finished. He'll be a lame duck president for the next four, three years, excuse me. And, right, um, the forces that will be massively, that will massively benefit from this loss will be this, this new harsh authoritarian right. But I think that... Um, I think he can turn things around, and I think he will. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the new constitution will be approved by a, not even a very slim majority. I think it'll end up doing somewhat well. And that will, you know, put uh, new wind in, in Boric's sails, uh, as it were, in the sails of, of his government, and will uh, push him forward with, you know, strengthened initiative and a, and a very strong popular mandate to move ahead with his tax reform agenda, with uh, his pension reform that will um, not totally eliminate private pensions, but will significantly bolster a universal public um, social security system. And a, num a, a number of other reforms like um, labor reform that will strengthen unions, give unions more rights, allow them to bargain collectively on an industry-wide level, which is not now um, approved by Chilean law. So there are a number of things that I think if we overcome this hurdle and the constitution um, is, is approved, 
right? Um, then, then it won't be smooth sailing, but um, we'll we'll see, we'll enjoy the the opportunity to uh, pass a number of significant reforms, which, as you said, right, will then give the strategic initiative over to the left, bolster it as a governing force. We'll lose elections down the line, but it will have established itself as the political uh, vehicle of Chileans working masses, you know, something they haven't had since, as you mentioned, um, Allende, since 1973. Um, so it's going to be tough. Um, you know, again, the developments might prove me wrong, but I think these more conjunctural possibilities of uh, gaining, right, uh, through these elections and through these kind of uh, passing these reforms, combined with what we mentioned earlier, the um, mix of different constituencies that are backing the government. In particular, um, I think it's going to be crucial, right? The power of Chile's revitalized labor movement, adding its structural leverage, right? Its social muscle to um, Boric's government once it clears this hurdle, right? I think. Um, it will not only allow for reforms, again, it will um, open the way for the emergence and the consolidation of a, a new type of left in Latin America. Well, on the, that positive note, I have one final question for you. Um, so I'm going to take the scope a bit more regional and move away from Chile. Yeah. So we've seen uh, in every major economy, basically, Argentina, Chile, Argentina, Mexico, uh Colombia now, which has never had a leftist government before and which previous attempts at uh, sort of left election campaigns resulted in massacres and essential extermination of political forces. It might happen and again. Hope, let's hope not. Uh, yeah, let's hope not. But uh, And hopefully Brazil, where uh, Lula still enjoys a significant polling advantage of Bolsonaro, uh, a return to the left. So if we have a region which, you know, the left was written off not that long ago, uh, return, especially in extremely difficult circumstances such as Mexico and Colombia, where you just campaign, you have to risk life or death. Yeah. Um, this regional resurgence or uh, return um, of these forces, uh, what prospects does that mean internationally for regional collaboration, for yeah. political change, and also for those uh, viewers in the United States who in uh, different conditions are maybe a bit down and depressed and thinking hey. things are not going so well uh, in this moment. Uh, what lessons are there and what hopes are there for the future? Because personally, on my note, on my, on my sense is that, you know, you basically have all the major economies of not just a continent, but a region that stretches all the way up towards the United States, making a turn against neoliberalism, making a turn for social rights and, you know, making a firm rejection of a order which is only brought upon brutality and failure in governance. Yeah. Uh, my, my first response is to say in a, in a sweeping manner that um, all of these developments are encouraging and should be encouraged and, we, and they should be supported. Um, you know, anytime Pedro, uh, Pedro wins in Colombia and the ruling class, which is a genocidal ruling class, right, is defeated. That's a great thing. If a Bolsonaro loses in Brazil, right, um, to, you know, a, a, a kind of um, 
triumphant return by by Lula. Uh, that's a that's a you know uh, all things equal net that that that's a good thing. If AMLO it manages to to kind of uh, win upcoming elections and uh, this new strange still kind of it's not clear what kind of a left it is, but if it survives and, and expands and continues to challenge the old ruling elite in Mexico, this is a these are all great things. Um, what I would say, though, um, and I, and I don't want to say this in a in solely a critical way because I think it also has some advantages built in within it. I, I would also say that um, I don't necessarily share the view that we have this kind of pendulum, sh- you know, shifting back to the left, and there's this uh, kind of coordinated, fairly um, um, homogeneous kind of new new left in power that is uh. in a homogeneous way fighting against you know an, uh, an authoritarian right. I mean, I, w- I, I would just uh, contend that I, I wouldn't say that. I would just say the kind of unique thing is that in all of these very different cases, there has been a shift. I mean, you know, Mexico and Colombia stand out as completely divergent. Yeah, so this, this is the strange thing about it is that there has been these shifts yeah. without being any coordination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other oh, words. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. But what I was going to say, however, is that, you know, these different lefts are really different. Different lefts are different. <laughs> these, these, these left kind of experiences throughout these countries are, are, are quite distinctive. So, for instance, you know, in Bolivia, and you might say Argentina, perhaps Brazil in many ways, you know, that the mass return to power in in Bolivia, that the Kirchner Kirchnerist Peronist return to power in Argentina, what I think what that really did was restore a balance that the Pink Tide had managed to install, right? With all its limitations, right? I fear, for instance, that a return of the PT to power in Brazil will restore the post-authoritarian neoliberal order pre-Bolsonaro, right? Which and I think actually produced helped produce Bolsonaro has all kinds of problems, right? So, so I would just want to not even caution, but just point out those differences and those limitations. But even then, I think I can end on on a more positive note because that regional configuration of different lefts with all their problems, with all their weaknesses, I think actually um, provides a much more fertile ground. For let's say, if I'm right, the way I've characterized the, this new left in Chile, for for instance, a a new form of left politics, a new way of you know um, left parties articulating, um, relating to their social bases, um, a new mix of constituencies backing them. For instance, right, this is all um, at this point. We're exploring what this might lead to. But the fact that you have a more favorable regional political panorama, I think, can only, only be advantageous to, for instance, the process in in Chile, the process in Colombia, which we all have to keep our eyes on to see what comes out, um, what what happens, you know, after Petro's election, et cetera, et cetera. So while I wouldn't um, subscribe to the view that you know, we, there's this return or a um, pink tide 2.0 in Latin America. Nevertheless, I do share the view, the optimistic and encouraging view that um, these individual, right, um, wins for the left and the way that they represent a weakening of 
um, certain sectors of, of the ruling um, of ruling elites in these countries are, are definitely um, promising developments. So on that final note, I'll just make a few comments quickly. One is that uh, this weekend saw an uh, example of a type of threat from the extreme right in Brazil, where a Bolsonarista candidate went to a Pachista's uh, sort of birthday party and just shot him dead. Uh, this is a guy who has photos with some of the Bolsonaro sons, and that just gives an indication to a guy who's famously promised to machine gun leftists. So right now, Lula sits ahead in the polls, and I'm feeling quite positive that uh, unless there is some chicanery, there's a very good chance of his return to power. In the case of Bolivia, of course, we have seen the coup plotters end up uh, legally punished, which is kind of incredible for Latin America on the right. And most miraculously of all, Colombia. I mean, if a country in which if you a uh, activist of any sort, you risk chainsaws and torture uh, can elect a government. I mean, the United States could always take the example, things could be much worse and there's always hope. So on that note, we're going to end and I would like to thank you for your time and your insight in Chile. Thank you. It was, it was fun talking. Appreciate it.